You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. Uh, Good to see you all. Good to worship with you all. just a couple of preliminary FYIs or housekeeping items. Uh, we do not have Redemption Hill kids this morning. We'll have Redemption Hill kids next week. But in the hallway right over there, you have uh, sermon notes for kids. Also, some kids' bags as well, if that serves you. So if you go out to the hallway just to your right, you'll find everything you need right there. All right. Well, as you know, uh, just from what Logan read, we're continuing on in our sermon series uh, through the book of Esther. Uh, the sermon series title is called The Unspoken Providence of God. And uh, for obvious reasons, I think you've you've seen that as we've kind of gone through the book of Esther. And as is our custom here at Redemptional Church, uh, we go through entire books of the Bible. So, uh, you know, prior to this, we were going through Ephesians. Uh, we've gone through Galatians and many other books of the Bible. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't do a sermon series uh, that that are topical, still expositional, of course, but, you know, topical by nature, say, you know, Advent, for example. Well, yeah, we do that as well, but we do love going through books of the Bible because we see this is God's word for us. And uh, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, uh, we want to be digging right in. Well, in a lead up to this particular sermon in Esther 4, I was thinking about this uh, particular idea of what does it mean for people to change, right? Uh, we, we, we're at a pivotal moment in the book of Esther this morning, and it's where we begin to see change in these beloved characters, right? We, we, we have Mordecai and we have Esther, which, you know, if you've, if you grew up uh, going to church and, you know, as a, as a father now who has kids in the church and I do devotions with them and I've taken through every devotional book imaginable. Well, in the younger, younger, uh, when they're younger, you go through like the story of Esther and it's just kind of romanticized. Like we do with all of our Bible characters, right? Uh, we tend to think very well of these individuals. Well, I've obviously kind of, kind of uh, pushed back against that a little bit or a lot and uh, have not painted the most rosy view of Esther and Mordecai up to this point. But today, we do see some change. And it's a legitimate change, I think. And so it got it got me to thinking, and I think this ties in with what we're going to see this morning, is like what causes a person to change, right? Um, I was at a cafe on Friday. I got my home office, of course, and my, like, my other home office is a cafe office. Um, you know, the Smoky Row and Waukee. And I got into a conversation with one of the baristas. She happened to be the manager. And, you know, it's a place I like. I walk in. They know what I want. Black coffee. You know, here's your, here you go, Pastor Sean. Thanks. Um, and so it was good. It's been good to develop a rapport there. And I was just talking with uh, the manager. because it, it was slow. We were just chatting it up. And we were chatting up about why people do or do not change. Um, the individual was kind of opening up about her life and talking about, you know, baggage and talk about other people in life and other people have baggage and like what do we do with that why don't people change can they change well long story short we began to talk about like what does it take right and at one point in the conversation i pivoted to saying how uh, an awakening or an awareness of god can cause a person to change right we, we certainly see how faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ causes a person to change, right? Like I, if I could tell you my story, I'm not going to do it right now, but in my early 20s, God breaking in 
and just just a flood, just flooding my heart with grace and mercy and love just causes you to change, right? Now, perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for years now, right? And and you still want to change, right? You need revival in the heart. So it's a kind of an ongoing process. It's not just one moment. It's a series of moments. In this room, I know this room is filled with stories of how uh, change happened in your life because God broke in. Um, and some of you are just still longing for that, perhaps, in, in specific areas of your life. And at the end of the day, what's the bottom line? You need God's help. You need you need God's help for the change. And so this was this was kind of the topic of of the conversation, um, you know, this last Friday at the cafe. And the conversation didn't go as far as I had hoped. Uh, you just you know you have, don't have unlimited time, so you only can talk about so much. But if I did have unlimited time, I would mention how dependence on God, dependence. An utter, complete surrender and dependence on God is a way where we can see change in our lives. Because when you're dependent upon God, 100%, you move move away from other areas you might be dependent on, right? Well, as we turn the page to Esther 4, we begin to see a change in our beloved characters, Esther and Mordecai, as I already mentioned. They're being pushed against the brink, up to the brink of annihilation. And how they respond indicates something about their awareness of God. Now, some people think that their change is like pragmatic, right? Like they just want to survive. Like Haman puts this edict out. Remember last week, uh, Esther 3, Haman puts this edict out. All the, all the Jews are going to die. And they just, you know, boom, they click, kick into what? Survival mode, right? And I, and I get that. I get that. I get how some people would say they're just trying to survive. But other people would say, well, no. Uh, they are having a reawakening of the soul. That's what we see in Esther 4. And I tend to think both took place. Oh, of course, <laughs> they kicked into survival mode. Survival mode. You would kick into survival mode if you were in their position. I would as well. And yes, perhaps moving, being pushed into a place of survival mode pushed them closer to God. Now, I'll walk with you through Esther 4, and you can determine to yourself how to make sense of you know, the conversation between Esther and Mordecai and how did change come about in their lives. I'll let you make that determination. Uh, one final note before I pray. We kind of get into more of our text. Uh, once again, I'll be sprinkling in several mini lessons, right? I kind of did that last week. I'm going to do it again this week. Uh, remember, these, these mini lessons are actually secondary to the primary po- points about the book of Esther, right? We can't lose sight of the fact that God is providentially uh, working out his redemptive plan. And Esther is a part of that redemptive plan, right? That's the kind of the big picture idea of the book of Esther. But along the way, we, we can learn from these beloved characters, Esther and Mordecai and others. And there's some lessons in there. And I think they're important to look at as well. So uh, four times to be exact, I'll stop and just say, you know, here's mini lesson number one. Here's mini lesson number two and so forth and so on. So let me pray and then we'll get into today's text. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time together. And, and once again, we come underneath your word, knowing that it is instructive and authoritative for our lives. And so I pray that those who are hearing this word, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would instruct minds and hearts. You would reveal more of yourself um, to all those who are here, including revealing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I pray for faithfulness, Lord, this morning as I preach your word. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. As I was um, studying and reading this passage, and really just the entire book of Esther, uh, this particular philosophical question kind of came to mind. And I wonder if you've ever heard of it before, if you've taken like philosophy 101, uh, you know, the professor or somebody in the class inevitably uh, asked this question. It says, if, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound, right? Like the tree fell, no one's around. So audibly, no one could hear it. Did it actually make a sound, right? Uh, the question is like a philosophical thought experiment challenging what we perceive and observe. Now, for the, for the sake of discussion, I'll argue the tree does make a sound. And if you want to uh, argue with me later and disagree with me on that point, that's fine. Uh, but just for the sake of discussion, let's just say it did make a sound, even though no one was there to actually witness the tree falling over in the forest, right? Um, I could easily ask the same question about the book of Esther, right? If God is never mentioned... And activities associated with God or faith, people of faith, like prayer, is never mentioned. Is God in the book of Esther, right? Like, how how do we make sense of the book of Esther when, when God is never mentioned? This is kind of like one of those questions we keep kind of coming back to over and over, week in and week out. And in part because when you read the Bible, right, the expectation is that we're learning about God and you expect to see God's name. You, you expect to learn about God. That's why we have theology coming out of scripture, right? But we just don't have that in Esther. So we kind of keep revisiting that question in, in different ways. Will, will the potential destruction, as it pertains to the story of Esther 3 and Esther 4, right? Will the potential destruction of the people of God be overcome if God is never mentioned? Like, did the tree that fell to the ground make a sound, even if you were not there to experience it? Well, you know, with that kind of thought experiment in view, I assure you, God is present in the book of Esther. Uh, you might remember uh, from last week that we were introduced to this guy named Haman. And we'll, we'll quickly review chapter 3 as it sets up chapter 4. Um, Haman's kind of the face of evil from several perspectives, right? At first, Haman, like the human being, is just evil. <laughs> he personally hatched a plan to destroy Mordecai and every Jew living in the Persian Empire. His goal seems absurd, like to kill all the Jews living in the Persian Empire. It seems absurd until you remember things like the Cambodian genocide. Uh, you remember that, and you're like, whoa, how, how did that happen? And you get the, the Russian gulags, right? All this kind of took place in the 20th century. Um, I, I, we've mentioned the Holocaust before. Like, it, it seems like Haman's plan is crazy. There's no way you could systematically kill an entire population of people. And then you realize, oh, wait, wait, that's already happened. So, yeah, it's not crazy. As, a, as evil as it is, it's not crazy to think about. When, when wicked rulers reign, uh, do not be surprised to see their, their wicked actions. Haman is also representative of a, of a decades-long tension between the people of God and the Amalekites. So like the first perspective of evil for Haman is that he's just personally evil. That's what we see. Uh, the second perspective, or second way Haman is evil is this decades-long battle between the people of God and the Amalekites. Now, I'm not going to retell how and why the Amalekites hate the Jews, and the Jews, frankly, hate the Amalekites, but it's worth noting that the, there's just tension between these two groups of people and this is what caused Mordecai to not bow to Haman. Now, if you want to know more about why in that particular story, 
go back to Esther 3 and listen to that sermon. Because, though, of Mordecai's inaction, he didn't bow, Haman is creates this plan to eradicate every Jew in the known world, right? And chapter 3 ends with this bewildering scene, right? We have all, chapter 3 is all about the destruction of the Jews and this plan being hatched. And this is the last verse of Esther 3. Uh, the couriers went out, so an edict was made, and the couriers went out hurriedly uh, by order of the king. So Haman convinced the king to do this. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, right? And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Isn't that crazy? Like at that last line, uh, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city was thrown into confusion. Like the king's edict went out and all of a sudden there was confusion in the streets. The city was perplexed by the proclamation. The, the primary question being asked is why, why is this proclamation even in, in existence, right? Like the people of God, right? Remember they, they were in exile. Now they could have gone back, but a lot of people chose to stay. And so they, were, they weren't technically in exile anymore, but they have assimilated into Persian culture. And they've become neighbors with those who are, you know, let's just say native Persian, right? Uh, they become co-workers, uh, friends with native Persians. Children grew up together. Families dined together. The people of God, including Mordecai and Esther, had, I think, uh, assimilated into Persian culture. And now they're going to be murdered as the city and really the entire M, uh, entire kingdom was torn into two, Haman and the king sipped on a glass of wine. Like the contrast between these rulers in the palace, like just sitting there and the madness on the streets could not be start more stark, right? Sinister minds sipped on wine while innocent people feared for the lives. Like what a massive disconnect. It, we're, we're meant to get a picture of what's going on in this palace. As, and we're going to see more of it here in a moment with Esther. Like what's going on in the palace is totally disconnected from the reality on the street. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure much has changed, frankly, when we look at modern day politics in the United States or otherwise. But I digress. Uh, the response, though, what we, what we need to focus on here uh, is the response of the people of God. Right? And the response is not unexpected. All throughout the Persian Empire, there all of a sudden was fasting, weeping, and lamenting. And many of them, quote, lay in sackcloth and ashes. Like that's a little foreign to our sensibilities, right? Sackcloth and, ash and ashes, but we run into it over and over in the Old Testament, actually. Uh, wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Uh, what that basically means is sackcloth and ashes were used to symbolize debasement, mourning, and repentance. Uh, sackcloth was like a coarse material, usually made of, of a black goat's hair, um, making it quite uncomfortable to wear. So you kind of put it over your body. And the discomfort of the material is meant to remind you of the discomfort that comes from your circumstances, right? So you see the symbolism there. And quite physical, right? You can feel that it's uncomfortable. Uh, the ashes signified desolation and ruin. Like when a house burns down, right? Uh, it's been desolated and ruined. What's left when a house burns down? Just the ash. Sackcloth and ashes are symbolic of the agony going on in the soul. 
you know, perhaps not, not really, but perhaps a 21st century equivalent could be wearing black to a funeral, but just nowhere near as comfortable, obviously, uncomfortable. Obviously people wear black to mourn the deceased, right? People wear black to grieve. So because wearing uh, sackcloth and sitting in ashes is foreign, just don't let it throw you off. Every culture for all time has symbols of, of mourning, 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 excuse me. And the people of God had every reason to mourn, right? Every reason to mourn, every reason to cry, every reason to lament. In an attempt to make a point and perhaps a scene, Mordecai takes his mourning to the center of the city. So like Edith goes out and Mordecai obviously knows and he goes to the center of the city and lets everyone know like he is in distress. And then he goes right up to the palace gate. Like let's not be confused here. Everyone knew what was going on. Almost everyone knew what was going on. Now, before looking at the passing of notes between Esther and Mordecai um, in the next kind of transition of our story, I want to ask a question. Um, it kind of serves as our first mini lesson, not kind of, but it does. And here's the question I want to ask from verses one to three. Um, is the response of the people of God like a model for modern day Christians, right? Like when tragedy strikes, can you open your Bible and turn to chapter four in Esther and find like a blueprint about how you can respond? As has been the case throughout the book of Esther, the answer to the question, like, can we go to this particular chapter? The answer is mixed. As we see in Esther, yes, it is appropriate to cry out without a doubt. It's normal to grieve through lamenting. We even know the significance of grieving in community. That, I mean, that's that's huge here. Like we have an entire population of people who are grieving together in community. I think that's very appropriate. But something is missing in our text, actually, that we that we must incorporate into our moments of crisis. Crisis. What is missing is prayer. The omission is glaring when you consider the totality of Scripture. The omission is actually really jarring when you when you go to the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament in particular, and we see how prayer is woven into the Psalms of Lament. Now, could we assume that they were praying while lamenting? That is in Esther 4? Sure, absolutely. It's a, that would be a fair assumption. But the absence of the Hebrew word for prayer is intentional. And so the omission is glaring, but we should not be shocked. Uh, the omission of prayer fits into the overall theme of our story. God is providentially at work amid a people seemingly far from him. God is present even though, even though he's not mentioned. God is present even though one of the most basic spiritual disciplines, like we talk about basic spiritual disciplines in any religion, right? Pick your religion. What is it? It's prayer. Now, some other religions might say more like meditation or whatever, but you get the point. That's not even mentioned here in Esther. The lesson is this. God, God of the Bible, God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises, even if you did not hear the tree fall in the forest. If you didn't hear the tree fall, God is still faithful. Now, would it be better for us to see the people of God explicitly praying you know, in our text? Of course, absolutely 100%. Uh, in this respect, may your response to crisis be filled with prayer. But God is still faithful, even when his people are complicated, 
messy and distant, right? God still sees the cries of his people. He sees the, he hears the cries of his people in Esther 4. God still acknowledges the laments of his people. There's no doubt about it. And if you are a follower of God, here's what you can bank on for the rest of your life. No matter what this world throws at you, no matter what, God is faithful. Like I just almost want to, I'm not gonna make you do it. I just want to have everyone stand up and repeat after me. God is faithful. Just to remind ourselves, right? No matter what this world throws at you, God is faithful. God's covenantal grip, his covenantal grip is tighter on you than your grip on him, right? Even if you're not doing it perfect, like am I praying right? Am I not praying at all, right? Of course we want to pray. We want to do, we want to do it well. I don't know if there's any right or wrong, but all that say, God's grip on you is greater than him. And you have great confidence that when you come crying out, when you come in prayer, when you come lamenting, he is there and he is faithful. All right. Many lesson over. We're back at the King's gate, right? This is where Mordecai's at. He's, he is lamenting. He is crying. And Esther takes notice of her cousin Mordecai. Esther's initial response to Mordecai indicates she has no clue on what is going on throughout the city and the Persian Empire. Like her initial reflex is humanitarian. And her humanitarian response is not wrong, right? She sees her, her cousin Mordecai in the streets without clothes and with sackcloth. And it's like, dude, get the guy some clothes, right? <laughs> Let's get some clothes around this man. Uh, he's embarrassing himself or whatever she's thinking, right? Or just having taken pity on him. Uh, she has no clue of what is going on. She sends clothes to Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to wear the clothes. But Esther has become insulated from the real world. What does Esther do? Well, she attempts to get uh, to the bottom of what is going on with Mordecai. Mordecai grieves because of the threat against the people of God. Esther grieves because she sees her friend in distress. So Esther has one of her servants, Hathak. Uh, he, Hathak ends up being the middleman. Esther can't go outside the palace, and Mordecai is obviously not going to go in wearing sackcloth. So she needs a little help. But here's how Esther learns of the plot to murder all the Jews, along with Mordecai's plea to Esther. Take a look at verses 6 to 8. And I quote, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that uh, Haman had promised to pay the king into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, right? Gave him a copy. Here's exactly what the king said, you know, is what the king said and this is what Haman's doing. And it talked about the destruction and he showed it to Esther and explained it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So in moments, in a matter of moments, Esther has all the information about Haman's plot. She is now processing a lot in a short amount of time, right? She had no clue. Now it's like, whoa, what? What's going on? But Mordecai tells her more. Mordecai tells Esther to go to the king to plead on behalf of the Jews. Only the king and the king only can undo Haman's evil plan. 
that is their only hope in a in a in a worldly perspective from a from a human perspective their only hope is that the king would step in and do something i can't imagine esther's reaction at this moment for 5 to 6 years uh, she had been isolated from the real world while also and this is really important concealing her religious identity so she's isolated from the real world doesn't know what's going on in the street and And this is what Mordecai told her to do. Don't tell anyone you're a Jew. But I think it's uh, critical to point out that even though she is hiding her faith, I don't think her faith like disappeared, right? At the end of the day, her faith in God is her identity. And that's, that's one of the things that we end up seeing in Esther. When God gives an identity, physical or spiritual, it's just, it's, it can't be changed. When God sets his hand upon you, says you're mine, guess what? You're his, right? And again, Esther suppressed her identity, but it's just I never left. It's always been there. She has always been a part of the people of God. But here, but here is really the million-dollar question. This is the question that's kind of on the table, and that in an indirect way, Haman is asking of uh, excuse me, Mordecai is asking of Esther. Will you, will you, Esther, acknowledge the Jews as your people? Verse eight, right? Mordecai says, her people. Will she acknowledge? The tension for Esther is that is at its height in the point of our story. What identity will take precedent in her life? Will her God-given spiritual identity be preeminent? Or will her worldly Persian identity remain prominent? Remember, only Esther, and this is an interesting fact throughout our entire book, of all the characters that we see, only Esther is actually given two names. She's got her Jewish name, Hadassah, and her Persian name, Esther. And that is meant to show us the tension that exists in this story. And here is the next mini, note, mini lesson, which is kind of, a, and honestly, a reoccurring mini lesson for us in the book of Esther. Uh, for many of you, uh, you are an American and a Christian, Right? And there are times when your American identity is in tension with your Christian faith. Uh, For example, uh, when you are confronted with like a cultural issue, and you can pick the topic for yourself, right? It doesn't take you long to find a cultural issue that you can pick where there could be tension. Uh, Does your, I don't know, patriotism, love for the Constitution, or ideology, whatever uh, worldview you might be looking at, does that take precedent over Christian principles spoken about in Holy Scripture, right? Or do your Christian principles take precedent? What you ultimately identify with, and hopefully it is your faith in God, right? Rooted and grounded in God's Word. That drives you to respond to any given circumstance. Like that tension, there's no way that tension does not exist in your life. <laughs> you're confronted with it at work. You're confronted with, it, confronted with it if you engage any cultural issue, it seems, these days. Like, are you first an American, then a Christian? Are you first a Christian? And then, yeah, you're American, but like at the end of the day, does that even really matter? And don't get me wrong, I love being American. I'm grateful for that. Love the Constitution, so forth and so on. But I, am I first a Christian? That's the real question at hand here. Who, what am I ultimately going to identify with? I could take the point a little further, actually. Uh, when you're pushed to the brink in your life, like things go sideways. It's just like 
tragedy does strike. Like, does your faith ground and guide the way forward? Or do you suppress or even attempt to replace faith solutions with a worldly paradigm? What takes precedence in your life? Guess what? Esther had to choose. Esther had to choose. I mean, I mean, she had to choose. And it's not just simple being Persian and, and a, and a you know, part of the people of God. But with being a Persian comes with like a way of viewing the world, a way of living in the world, a particular ideology, right? And as we see all throughout Scripture, the way of God is much different to everything else we see in the world, all the, all the other religions that we see in the world, right? And what will Esther choose? She is conf- confronted with a choice. Will she attempt to advocate and mediate for her people? Or will she continue to live in isolation from her people? Like, like I don't want to see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to know what's going on out there. What will, she, what will she do? Well, Esther, I would imagine, had to think hard about her next steps because her life just might be on the line. After hearing the news from Mordecai, Esther sends Hathak back to Mordecai. We read in verses 11 and 12. If you want to... Take your eyes, go to verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman, anyone, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, like, this is a real deal here, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds the golden scepter so that he or she may live. Like, so here, here's, here's, the, here's the real deal. Like, this is real life for Esther. And it's likely Mordecai knew very well about this particular law. Esther's life would be on the line if she approached the king without being called. Could the king extend his uh, golden scepter and spare her life? Sure. But we have already we've already seen in this book that King Ashuerus is extremely temperamental. Like you just don't know what kind of king you're going to get out of him. He is unreasonable at times. And if Esther approaches him like in a bad mood, I mean, it could be all over for her. There'd be no mercy for her. Like, let me just quickly go back to what happened to Vashti, Queen Vashti, the previous queen, right? She just didn't want to come out to him during a party. And then Esther, or excuse me, um, King Ashuerus went crazy. He's like, no, you broke the law. You're out. I mean, the, the same thing could happen to Esther. And Esther makes sure Mordecai knows the risk, even though I think Mordecai is well aware. But Mordecai, we see in this exchange of letters, right? He's unwavering. And perhaps for the first time in the book of Esther, Mordecai sees clearly what is at stake. His final response to Esther is kind of like the money line for the entire book of Esther. Like if you're like, what, what verse do people memorize out of the book of Esther? It's like verses 13 and 14. So here we go. Uh, do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. As again, Mordecai talking to Esther. Verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for Jews from another place. I'm going to talk about the providence of God right here in a moment. But continuing on, But for you and your father's house will perish. And here's the line that everyone like, How do I sum up the book of Esther? Here we go. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Boom. 
for such a time as this. Mordecai is doing the mic drop with Esther. If Esther was not queen during this time in history for this moment, at this time, right, then why was she queen at all? Mordecai is subtly pointing out the providence of God in Esther's life. He's like, Esther, I, he's like, Esther, hey, I need you to see this. God is at work. He wants to use you. This is why you're here. Man, I wonder how that landed on her, right? Okay, so we we actually need to step back here for a moment because uh, what we see in verse 14 is critical. And it's connecting some dots from other moments in the book of Esther so far. So here's a quick review of the unspoken providence of God in the book of Esther. It's just two, two more examples. We, we saw the providence of God when, when Queen Vashti was dismissed because her dismissal created that opportunity for Esther to ascend to the throne, right? And we saw that in Esther 1 and 2. We saw the providence of God when, when Mordecai just happened, air quotes here, right? He happened to be at the right place at the right time, overhearing a plot to kill the king. And so then his good deed gets written in to this really important book that we're going to get to next week. And now the providence of God smacks us right in the face with Mordecai's response to, to Esther. He's effectively saying to Esther, have you considered that your ascension to the throne is because, is because God calls you, he calls you to act on his behalf? Have you considered that, Esther? And Esther, without a doubt, is stunned at the suggestion. Why? Why? here's why I would imagine she would be stunned. I would be stunned. Uh, why would God use her, a sinner? Why would God use someone who had been actively hiding her faith for at least five years? And granted, it was Mordecai who told her to hide her faith, but Esther still acted on that. She hid her faith. Pastor Ian DeGuid gives an excellent summary of what we're reading in verses 13 and 14. And I quote, Would Esther be in such a position of royalty if God had not raised her up? But given the nature of Esther's rise to prominence through an ethically doubtful marriage to a pagan and the concealing of everything distinctly Jewish about her lifestyle for the past five, six years, the, the question is real. It is as if someone who has risen up the corporate ladder by shady manipulation of the books, along with neglecting his family and any connection with the church, were asked to stand up at a board meeting uh, for his faith over a crucial issue. His response, DeGuid says, might be, could God really use someone like me after everything I've done or failed to do? Huh. The surprising answer in Esther's case is yes. God's providence works through all kinds of sinners. And DeGuid ends with this statement, which after all is the only material available. <laughs> I just love this statement. FYI, you're a sinner. A sinner saved by the grace of the gospel, you may be, but you're a sinner nonetheless. And yes, God can and does use sinners. 
I mean, I'm, I'm guessing as we get kind of think about this in terms of the book of Esther, I'm guessing for some of you, I've just absolutely wrecking your view of Esther. And I'm hopefully recalibrating your view of Esther. Just trying to take an honest look at Esther. And an honest look at Esther includes seeing she is a sinner. She has not been practicing her faith for years. She was concealing her faith. Listen, Esther, this is one of the points we've got to make about this particular story and many other stories in the Old Testament. Esther is not the hero of this story, no more than David was the hero or was not the hero when he defeated Goliath. Esther is not the hero. David was not the hero. What do we see in Esther 4, chapter 4? God delights in using broken and messy people to bring about his redemptive purposes for his glory. Esther is about what God is doing. Uh, We can take Esther's situation and Duguid's insight to offer another mini lesson. Again, I just want to remind you, these mini lessons are simply secondary to the primary point of Esther, God's providence at work to bring about his redemptive purposes. But here's the mini lesson. Number three, you are a sinner. Let it land in you. A sinner, perhaps saved by grace, right? Saved by the grace of the gospel, but a sinner nonetheless. Perhaps you've been the cause of tremendous pain and brokenness over yourself, right? You, you, you are the issue, <laughs> Or perhaps you've been the recipient of much pain and brokenness as well. That goes both ways. Your past and maybe your present is not only complicated, but it's messy. You have come to this point where you sit right now as you listen to me. You've come to this point to your life through good and poor choices. Perhaps you think you are unworthy to be used by God because of sin. Well, in one sense, God disagrees with your assessment of you. Yes, you are a sinner and you are unworthy to be used by God. Make no mistake about that. In a a, a very real sense, you are unworthy. However, it is the person who knows that they are unworthy to be used by God, that God delights in using. He He ends up raising those people up. The people who know they are unworthy to be used by God recognize the need for much grace and mercy. It's through God's grace and mercy that we see God's providential hand at work. You know, God is an expert of taking your brokenness and providing healing and making something beautiful. God makes it his aim to take your messiness, to give clarity and order. God takes the state of sin that covers you from head to toe and makes you pure and whole through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, through faith in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You see, You and Esther are not much different. Despite everything in your past and present, you need God. And in all situations and circumstances, the hero is always God. It's about what God has done. It's what he has done for you. God is always the hero. God is always the hero of your story, which means you can always have hope. Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine if Sean Powers was the hero of his story? Man, I would mess that up in about five seconds. I would say five minutes. But that seems really charitable. Probably more like five seconds. So I thank God he's the hero of my story. He's the hero of Esther's story. All right, mini lesson over. Now, 
I, I do think there's tremendous irony in the sermon series title and in, in light of what we've seen in the book of Esther. On the one hand, uh, the name uh, of God is never uttered, so the sermon series titled uh, Unspoken Providence, right? So we get that. God, the name of God is never uttered. On the other hand, we can't deny that God is at work at every single turn. It's like you turn the page in Esther, God's at work. I mean, the name of God is not spoken, but he is present in the sense that when the tree fell in the forest, we know it made a sound. God and his providence is completely at work in Esther. The fingerprints of God is all over the pages. Uh, the providence of God is also seen in how Mordecai actually frames uh, the final question for Esther in verses 13 and 14. He says to Esther, no matter what you choose, no matter what you choose, <laughs> this, this, is, this is how I begin to see that the needle is shifting, the faith needle is shifting for Mordecai. No matter what you choose, Esther, God will be faithful to save his people. You know, Mordecai even admits, like, we might die. Your house may die um, if you do nothing or if you do something. But God is still faithful. And it's in these verses where we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Sean, how in the world do you see the gospel in this passage? Like, Pastor Sean, are you taking a square peg and trying to, like, hammer it into a circle, right? A hole that's a circle, right? Is that what you're trying to do here? And uh, I don't think so. Here's how I see the gospel in verses 13 and 14. Now, what is the pinnacle of God's faithfulness, right? It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross of Jesus where God's greatest act of redemption is displayed. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that allows us to look back into redemptive history and forward into redemptive history. In other words, like this, this helps you how to read your Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament. When trying to discern how to interpret biblical events, you've got to interpret through the lens of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You interpret it through the lens of the gospel. You interpret it through the lens of Christ. That's really important. So with the cross as our lens, we look at the words of Mordecai and say, yes, Esther did ascend to the throne for such a time as this. She did ascend to the throne to give us a glimpse of God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises and help us to see his redemptive plan. I mean, just take this in contrast to Jesus. And I think this is really powerful. The second person of the Trinity did not ascend. He condescended, right? The path of redemption didn't mean he ascended to a throne, but he came off his throne to earth for such a time as this. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Esther's rise to the throne will lead to a physical redemption of the people of God. Remember, they were in exile and, and they're about to be murdered here. And, you know, will God save them? Well, we see what God is doing in ascending Esther to being queen. That's what I think Esther is seeing in chapter 4. But Christ stepping off his throne leads to the ultimate redemption for the people of God. I think that's pretty powerful. When we think about how do we see the gospel in the book of Esther? How do we see Christ in the book of Esther? Now, here are a few more Christological connections from Esther and actually in the person of Esther. The ascension of Esther also puts her in a position to mediate between the king, King Ashuerus, right? 
and the people of God. Like who else could potentially receive the ear of the king? There was no Jew. There was no, uh, not that we're aware of, a Jewish lobbying group that could go to the king, right? Esther is the only possible mediator. And it's interesting. I was just kind of thinking, I'm thinking out loud here. Uh, You almost see why Mordecai told Esther not to talk about her faith, right? Because now Esther, and I mean, I would say, I would put this in the category of God's providence. God's going to use that. It's not an excuse for Esther, but God's going to use that to allow Esther to get the ear of the king. She's the only one who is in position to potentially do that. And I've said this in a previous sermon, you know, as this story unfolds, we see the shape of Christ in these characters. Well, the mediator Esther points to a more excellent mediator, Jesus Christ. Just as Esther was the only possible mediator between King Ahasuerus and the people of God, Jesus was the final and perfect mediator between God and his people. I, I think 1 Timothy 2.5 makes it straightforward for us. And I quote, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for us. And just you, you hear the, the whole such a time as this language in this last sentence, which is the testimony given to us at the proper time for such a time as this. Jesus is our great mediator. It's through our great mediator where we see the path toward redemption. And Esther, Esther, we see Esther here beginning to take the shape of our great mediator, Jesus. And we see more of Christ in Esther, actually. Uh, Look at Esther's response to Mordecai. Esther's response to Mordecai is remarkable for several reasons. Take take a a look at verse 16 of Esther 4. Then I will go to the king. She she concedes. All right. I, I clearly see what's at play here and what's at stake. I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Like, let that land on you. Like, are, are you willing, you personally willing, to take on the shape of Christ in this respect? Self-sacrifice. Like, up to this point in the story, Esther is a, is a pretty face in the king's service. I'm not trying to talk down on Esther, but she was a young woman who first took commands from Mordecai, who, you know, functioned as, as her father because she was an orphan. And then she took orders from the king. But Esther shifts into another gear after hearing the devastating news from Mordecai. Verse 16 indicates a watershed moment, not only for all the Jews throughout the empire, but for Esther. She is becoming a woman of God who sees a glimpse of God's redemptive plan and see, and she sees that it might take giving up her life to serve God, which is exactly right, which is, which is consistent with what we see in the New Testament. Following God means giving it all up. Now, in whom do we see a similar kind of self-sacrifice? Obviously, it's Christ. Christ was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Not only just willing, he actually did it. He took the hard road to the cross on behalf of his people. Now, I think it takes divine faith. I think that's what we see here, to lay down your life for others. Now, some some might object, and there might be some of you 
you know, listening to this, who, who are going to object and say, I'm taking liberty to insert belief into Esther. You know, perhaps I get that. I, I get that impulse because after all, it's very, very hard to talk about God when God is never mentioned, especially by our main characters, especially when they're not doing any of the spiritual disciplines we would expect the people of God to do. So I get the objection. But I, but I think there is warrant to see an act of faith from Esther. Here is why. Mordecai communicates to Esther that no matter what, no matter what, the people of God will persist. Persist. Verse 14. Mordecai is implicitly acknowledging that God keeps his covenant promises. Like God made a promise to Abraham to make a great nation. And this great nation is going to bless other nations. Genesis 12. And this promise is reaffirmed over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. Mordecai knows this. He knows this. He, he knows his Old Testament. He knows his Bible. I guess at the time for him, he knew his Bible. On what other basis, in light of what he knows, on what other basis does Mordecai and now Esther have to believe the Jews will not be wiped off the planet? A hunch? A guess? A false hope? Or is Mordecai and Esther remembering the faithfulness of God? God has always been faithful to his people. We know the stories. And why would we doubt him right now, even when it seems like we got a guy named Haman who wants to wipe out every Jew off the face of the planet? Why would we doubt God? Why? And this serves as our fourth mini lesson. And our fourth mini lesson is really going to take us to Galatians 3, that every, where we read that every follower of Jesus Christ is a recipient of God's promise to Abraham. Further, the story of Esther is your story. Like the, we, we, Here's how you do not read your Bible. The Old Testament is about the Jews. The New Testament is about Christians, right? No. The Bible is about the people of God. It's about God's chosen people. And if you are part of a part of uh, the people of God, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you could look at Esther and be like, oh, that's part of my story, right? That's in my family history. So in the darkest moments of your life, you can trust that God is faithful to you. Just as he, was, he is faithful in the book of Esther, you could be like, ah, he's going to be faithful to me. So it's not a hunch. It's not a false hope. God has like a 100% uh, batting average, I guess that doesn't work very good. And if you're doing MLB, it's going to be like a 1,000% batting average when it comes to keeping promises and proving himself to be faithful over and over and over again. And guess what? As we see in today's text, it takes remembering. It takes remembering, reminding yourself of what God has done for you, what God has done for his covenant people. Final mini lesson over. Esther 4. Esther chapter 4 ends the same way it begins. The chapter started with acts of desperation from the people of God. And in, and Esther 4 ends with additional actions from the people of God. But instead of Esther receiving orders, she is now giving orders. Again, I keep talking how like the, the, the switch has been flipped for Esther, right? <laughs> She's growing. And it just seems like a few moments she's growing up in her relationship with God and now in trying to help the people of God. And she is the one giving orders. She tells Mordecai to have all the Jews and Susa fast from food and drink. And then Esther and her women are going to do the same. 
Esther is now giving the orders while simultaneously setting the example. Verse 16 is another indication of, of change in the life of Esther. We talked earlier about you know, what causes a person to change. Well, I, I think, and I've been trying to show you, that it's God who causes a person to change. And yes, there are certain steps and actions that a person must take as well. And that's what Esther is doing. We're going to fast. We're going to abstain from food and drink for three days. And we're all going to do it together. We're going to do it in community. We see the change in Esther's life. Uh, the steps to fast for three days demonstrate complete dependence upon God. The Jews were not fasting to receive like personal revelation from within. Like, can we just figure it out from within? If we just try hard enough, we could figure it out or maybe try to wish away uh, the potential genocide of all the Jews, right? No, they fasted because they needed God to intervene. They needed God to intervene. That was their only hope. They knew that their hope for the future was dependent upon God. So they surrendered wholly. They surrendered themselves to God. Esther 4 is the turning point in the book of Esther. It shows us that when dark clouds loom, like that was that was last week, that was Esther 3. The dark clue, the dark clouds are clearly everywhere. But even when that is happening, God is still at work. God can provide a way forward out of the dark cloud and into a life of restoration and peace. As, as for our characters, we see maturity, uh, godly maturity, by the time Esther 4 ends, which is quite amazing when we consider how, I think, messy and complicated Esther and Mordecai are. But we see maturity. We see the people of God come together as a covenant people to cry out, to lament, and to fast. We see God working through messy and complicated people to show he is always the hero of each and every story of redemption. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.